Metricast. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westman demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother, Wesley. Today we're talking the supposed best movie of the year, the much-anticipated Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio collab, Killers of the Flower Moon. Kelly was regarding this one with utmost dread. I had to convince her and burn one of my, like, fiancé points to get her into the seat, not only for the crazy excessive runtime of three hours and 26 minutes, but also because hard subject matter. Robert De Niro's William Hale, King Bill Hale, bad dude. Yep, and perfectly in keeping with a lot of Martin Scorsese characters. Leonardo, I, what I realized in this movie is that Leonardo DiCaprio in Scor- Scorsese's movies are is almost always uh, irredeemable, unredeemable. And he's unredeemable in this hapless kind of way. I mean, Ernest Burkhard, kind of not a smart dude. And Tom White, the Jesse Plemons character, sums it up pretty neatly when he's like, your uncle took advantage of you because of your personality. <laughs> what did he say? Disposition. Because he just was very malleable. Gets good observation. I mean, he's a perfectly serviceable white man in this story where he has all the white man power and agency and resolve to do the things that he needs to do while at the same time falling in love and professing to love. And I think he kind of hides behind that idiocy, that sort of ignorance, and doesn't think too hard. Otherwise, he would see the conflict in his position. Whereas Hale, undoubtedly, his uncle totally knows what's what he's doing at all times, or does he? Yeah, that's a good question. Tom White is like the... Not the conscience of this movie, but he helps to spell it out for us. I think he was the one who also characterized Hale as being, um, he sees himself as a righteous man. And it's hard to know whether or not Hale really believes that he's a righteous man or if he hides behind that righteous facade. But I think that the contrast is just so stark between his righteous facade and his, frankly, just evil doings. It's like, um, how could he not be aware? Yeah. The evil boils down to what we discussed in Promising Young Woman, where I do believe that a duality exists. How could Ernest love Molly, be interested in her and care for her and stuff, while at the same time slowly and consciously poison her the whole time? Uh, Hale is much more, his division of character is much more obvious, uh, just good and bad. And it doesn't, the line isn't muddled because we don't see him in, in, in a domestic situation, really. 
But I honestly believe that men, when they cheat, I think the justification is that it's completely separate somehow. If you cheat on your wife, it doesn't mean that you don't love your wife. It's just you're doing this other thing. And this is a need or a compulsion that I feel it has nothing to do with you which obviously is ridiculous because you bear a responsibility to the other person in the relationship. But I think that separation is what allows Ernest to be two different people and Hale to be two different people. And it's not that they're related. It is simply that this is the nature of the duality of dudes that is pretty distressing. That being said, if Ernest genuinely believed that he was just, quote, slowing Molly down, with the poison that he was administering along with her insulin, if it was even insulin, if he genuinely believed that, then he wouldn't have tried to hide it in that last moment they have together where Jesse Plums is kind of hanging around and they're talking and she confronts him about it. He's like, it was insulin. That showed me that he knew that it was wrong. Oh, I don't doubt that he knew it was wrong. He was, I don't think he was able in that moment to reconcile the evil with his good intentions for his family or his feelings of love and affection for Molly. Because the only moment where I actually believed that Ernest was not in conflict with himself and I actually believed that his emotion was genuine was when he was all tore up after Anna died of the whooping cough. Yeah, the little girl. Yeah. But also Hale was distraught, and I think genuinely so. It's almost like there are rules with gangsters and thugs and convicts, things like that. There are very clear rules. You don't mess with kids. And typically speaking, there are like street rules where you don't mess with family. But I think that Hale also definitely felt really bad about the kid's death. I mean, he didn't cause it, but it seemed like it was inevitability. It was, you know, some kind of karmic thing that was destined to happen. It's true. When you start killing kids and wives and mothers and cops, then it's just all out gangster war. Which is what made this. I was like, why killers are the flower moon? Because Scorsese, while he deviates sometimes, is primarily known for gangster movies in one way or another. And this is really just maybe one of the earliest instances of American organized crime. When Scorsese read it, he said he knew he had to make it. And I wasn't sure why that was until I saw the movie. And then it became painfully obvious because there are so many Scorsese elements, not just stylistically, but from his other movies. It seems very clear clear that this is basically a gangster type movie. Therein also lies some duality, I think, in Scorsese's character because he can't help himself. He's going to make violent, gritty, gangster type pictures, but at the same time, he feels a real affection for the Osage people. Like he went out of his way and he talked to a, a tribal elder about representation in this film and he got a lot of them involved. And of course, we have Native Americans, what are we calling them? Indigenous from every tribe conceivable because we only have so many actors. But he came to really care about the people, which is really evident in the kind of nifty replacement of a postscript when they did the radio reenactment. And you can see the emotion on his face when he talks about the fates of the people that he's portraying in his movie. That, of course, being Martin Scorsese on stage for the final reading. Loves the Osage people and then has many of them brutally murdered on screen for his gangster pick. Lily Gladstone, I think she has an appropriate third billing because they could have easily not included her in all of the P&A. But she's right up there with them, and rightly so. And a lot of 
care given and attention given and screen time given to kind of the workings of the nation, like how they administer justice or how they how the community comes together to deal with problems, the rituals and rites surrounding marriage and death, and just the general disposition of the people as being this very proud, very wise people group, but also very sickly, which seemed like was being perpetrated on them and wasn't just kind of naturally occurring. I knew about the uh, reign of terror, but I wondered, was the reign of terror a wasting illness that might have been manufactured by the white man? I wasn't really sure because we didn't get to the killing right away. So when you say a lo an allotment of the screen time went to Osage practices and immersion in the culture, I would like to think very much that that's true. I wonder, though, at three hours and 26 minutes, if it isn't a little bit like drippings from the king's table. Like if you have an excess of food, then you could be like, oh, my Lord is very generous and he feeds the poor. But it's kind of the same as swiping the leftovers onto the poor's plates instead of into the trash bin. And you get a lot because there is a lot. Um, I'm hoping I, I hope that a lot of the screen time of this incredibly long movie was devoted to some representation of Osage on screen. I get what you're saying. That there was enough representation because there was more than enough screen time. <laughs> but had the filmmakers been truly discerning about the story that they told, then maybe they might have been less generous with the Osage depictions. Yeah. I mean, so Killers of the Flower Moon was about what I expected from Scorsese and his world-class team, uh, which is to say high quality filmmaking that's bloated and lacks discretion. He takes us very deep into this fascinating, dark, kind of very evil story. And it's fascinating from end to end, right? Like A to Z. But it felt arbitrary to choose to spend three and a half hours on about A to M and then 10 minutes of the radio hour on N to Z. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yep. Like, especially with ADM being kind of so redundant and more more like a character study than a driving narrative. The only thing that drove the narrative, I felt like, was the murders. I guess murders and, and the birth of like three or four kids. I agree. For a long, a really long movie, there seemed to be time jumps that weren't terribly well set up. We just know that all of a sudden there's another kid in the picture. And that's how we know we've progressed at least a year in the story. But that was really it. And the murders. Right. It is the arguably the most expensive R-rated film in history. $200 million. Oof. And longer than The Irishman, which was also bloated and, and in my humble opinion, less overall entertaining. But and, and that to say that with a really long runtime, you can show it less. And if you show it less, you make less money. And this is a lot banking on what is a fairly small story in the scope of Martin Scorsese movies. Now, it was also streamlined. The Reign of Terror ranged the murders from 60 Osage at the low end to hundreds in the high estimates. Uh, relatively few of which are depicted on screen because we're focusing curiously on Molly's family in particular. And that's horrible. And it feels total because everyone dies in Molly's family. Everyone. It's like where the banker dude from um, who was the gas station attendant in in No Country for Old Men with just that amazing cinematic waddle. 
<laughs> he was like, dude, De Niro, you're kind of overstepping yourself here. Like, aren't you making yourself known? And that was my question. Was Hale, was King Hale perpetrating his wasting illness on all, on multiple families? Or was it just Molly's family and their specific head rights? Because they certainly weren't the only predators around. Like Bill Smith had his own racket going, although it was also focused on Molly's family. Did the wasting illness originate with Hale? Because I, he said they're the most beautiful people on God's earth. And I think he truly believed that. And he's like, kind of, I don't even know if he thought, oh, it's a shame to have to kill all of them for their money. But anyway, here we go. And then he said, but there are sickly people. And I thought when everyone started wasting away, maybe they really are sickly people. Maybe this is a sickness. But you're saying that he mass enfeebled the people? Uh, that's what I'm wondering. Now, Molly was diagnosed specifically with diabetes. It seemed a lot like her sister, who died before her, was suffering from something similar. She had the same kind of dark circles under her eyes and lack of energy and would kind of sit very ghost-like in the midst of parties and stuff like that. So maybe, maybe there was a genetic predisposition to diabetes. But then I, I can't help but think that they were all in on it, and they were all kind of systematically poisoning these people. I mean, the doctors were crooked. That was obvious. Yeah, I think everyone was crooked, because there's opportunity, and everything is unregulated, where money is concerned. It seems like they weren't terribly well-suited the Osage, obviously, to having this tremendous influx of wealth, didn't really know what to do with it. You would think if we're dying, we don't have to stay here, that the best doctors in the world, in the country, would be at our disposal. Indeed, she can have insulin brought in, which only half a dozen people in the world have access to on a regular basis, and it kind of wasn't enough. Of course, there was poison in her freaking insulin, but still, for her family, a whole lot of money. I was confused by the Osage are rich and they can afford drivers, and then she's asking for dispensations from gas station man, and what that was about, are some of them wealthy and others are dirt poor? Is there a class disparity or something? But it turns out that it was generally regarded that the Osage were incapable of managing the finances that they suddenly found themselves possessing. And so white men were assigned or were hired or considered to be necessary to help them manage their money. So she goes and asks for her own money to go to Washington or to do, you know, for a medical treatment. And he's like, well... I'm not sure if that's a good idea, you know? That was crazy to me. Yeah, like he has some kind of say in it. Yeah, and I guess he did because he was a money manager. What's the what's the deal, the problem between Britney Spears and her dad? He was a controlling person who maybe tried to force her on stage and then imposed a conservatorship whereby he became the head of her estate because she was ruled incompetent to care for herself and allegedly got in her face at that moment and said, I'm Britney Spears now. He exercised parental control over her career and then was given autonomy over her career as an adult legally. So was he like a conservator? Conserv was it a conservatorship? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that it was formal. I, I can't, I don't know. I think it was, he was an advisor, but I don't think he could restrict it. He could strenuously, you know, and then there was always this area. It wasn't like today where you can just be like, well, you know what? I'm going to do what I want with my money. 
I think that they were a people on the verge of losing their land anyway, and the money doesn't mean anything if the people to whom you're appealing don't value you the way you should be valued. You know what I mean? Like they, I think they were under the thumb of Hale and the white men in general, just sort of psychologically. And the white man says, I don't think you should do this. So they don't do it because they don't have a sense of what it means to be wealthy in what I presume they consider to be a white man way. Yeah, it kind of boggled my mind why they deferred to Hale in so many, on, on so many occasions. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on ElectroCast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. And also, it kind of boggled my mind in the opposite way that she made it to D.C. They didn't slow her down before then or block her before then that they allowed her to make that plea to the president, which was great. I was very happy she did it. And I was so, so happy and relieved to see her in the hands of like true medical professionals. Yeah. And see her rehabilitated and then to see her coda where she went on. And I don't know how someone who experiences this these very traumatic series of events marries again forever a white dude like i i don't know how i would be able to trust somebody ever again but i was happy to see that she she moved on she did it didn't last long she died just a couple years after Mm. so lily gladstone do you know much about her i did hear that she was on the verge of applying for some data entry course or something and was putting in her, her like credit card information when she got an email saying that Martin Scorsese wanted to FaceTime with her. I know that she was cast pretty much immediately without an audition. And as you said, rightly so, I think she has tremendous presence and poise for the best that the Osage young generation can offer. I think she went into it with Ernest with her eyes wide open, which really can't be said for him. I think he was his eyes were in different directions with Hot Girl and with his uncle and who to be loyal to or true to. Yeah, because the Molly characters full on like Coyote wants money. Exactly. She knew everything that was happening and she was present and she was aware and uh, and demure and she seemed really intelligent so that a little bit boggled my mind how she allowed herself to be so hurt for so long and so deceived. Suffice it to say, you know, an amazing opportunity for an actor, a real break for her career to be a part of this movie in a highly prominent role. And she had all the things, the poise, the confidence that probably comes with money, but the lack of confidence that comes without a ton of experience and a genuine love and affection for Ernest, despite knowing that he wasn't very smart and whatnot, but he's kind of handsome. I find I keep on finding it so strange that people still find Leonardo DiCaprio to be handsome. Like, I understand he can't quite ever shake his pretty boy looks. and But King Hale says, you've got a good face. And Lily and her sisters are gossiping and talking about how cute he is. And I was like, I don't know. What I see is the new 
the newly formed Leonardo DiCaprio scowl. Yeah, the hard lines where he's yeah. trying. But he's he's always been trying to be hard and scowly, right? And finger pointy. That's how we know he's not the dreamboat uh, Jack Dawson. Like, he's always tried to be tough. And so I always kind of track him as, as if Leonardo DiCaprio looks old, then I know I look old. He's a couple years older than me. And I agree. But let me tell you. When he said the line, so-and-so, and and, well, he must be a handsome devil then in the car. And Molly does that gorgeous laugh. Like, it's really, it shows the moment that they, that she kind of softens to him a little bit. Yeah. That was an an ad-libbed line. That was Leonardo DiCaprio improvising a line. And that was Lily Gladstone's genuine laugh. And man, I turned and Kelly Ray was thoroughly charmed. In a Martin Scorsese, (laughs) which basically equates to a horror movie for her, she was all smiles. He's still charming. He is an attractive guy. That said, Ernest, with his terrible hairstyle and his forehead lines, was maybe the least attractive romantic lead in a movie ever. The teeth. Oof. But he, teeth. Yeah, the, the teeth makes it definitely rough. But I believe that he's poised to be a serious-looking leading man. Uh, he just kind of dirties it up as much as he can. Don't get me wrong. If I had to do a makeout scene with Leonardo DiCaprio, I would freak out. So I completely understand where Lily Gladstone is coming from. That being said, he was not hot in this movie. Not and at all. Even when Kate Blanchett is talking about him being handsome in Don't Look Up, I was like, who? Him? <laughs> anyway, it was a very Leo role. He he rises to the occasion. And it's not that it's misdirected. It just feels very Leo. It doesn't feel like he's invisible inside of his character. Lily Gladstone, very powerful performance. But come at me, bro. A little one note. Well, that's all she has. She's a little bit monotone in her reservation. No pun intended for reservation. Wow. She's just wow. she's just a very demure, reserved person, which I really liked about her character. I didn't need her to be more than one note. I think what you're talking about, though, is the duality of this movie. Like Titanic, one of the most horrible tragedies uh, of, of, of seafaringness or whatever. And we're focusing <laughs> on the love story of a fictitious dude, a fictitious characters, and using the tragedy as a backdrop. The Reign of Terror, a real tragedy. These two characters, Ernest and Molly, real people. But they chose to focus, Martin Scorsese in particular, chose to focus on this romance, which is kind of Leonardo DiCaprio's thing. But originally, DiCaprio was cast as white, as the investigator, when this was much more about the Osage murders and the people who perpetrated them. And then when it came to focus on more on Molly and Ernest and their relationship, it changed and his role changed to be the Ernest character. But there's... A lot that is downplayed in service of a love story, which doesn't work literally in the movie. Their love story does not work. And does it do a disservice to the tragedy that they endured? A lot of Osage people involved in the production for authenticity's sake and representation have misgivings and conflicted feelings about how Flowers of the Killer Moon ultimately turned out. Killers of the Flower Moon. That's what I said. Flowers of the Spider Moon, August Osage County. We've seen people killed, no investigation. People shot in the back of the head from the window of their house, no investigation. And then with the love story, I was like, where are we going? We're dropping the thread a little bit on what the ultimate tragedy is supposed to be. And I think that, you know, in true Martin Scorsese form, he's romanticizing something awful, quite literally by putting a love story in the middle of all the trauma. 
albeit, you know, a true marriage, but, but a true horror that the love story involves the husband systematically and relentlessly poisoning his wife. And when the love story falls apart, he just replaces it with the investigation. And we move into that kind of second phase of the story. Yep. Am I crazy that I still believe that Jesse Plemons steals every scene that he's in? He's great. And strangely so. Because every time we see him, Kelly and I turn to each other and we're like, fucking Todd. <laughs> because Todd from Breaking Bad is so deplorable. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> Maybe he is just one of those dedicated, understated actors. Usually when he talks, he talks about how amazing his co-stars and stuff were. He's very quiet. And maybe he's just one of those under-the-radar <sighs> gems in the rough. I just love him. I love him. And I love that in every scene in Killers of the Flower Moon, I can see in his face, in his eyes, that he's 12 steps ahead. Yep. And he just is smarter than you. He's just smarter than you. And he's so humble about it. He knows that and he has confidence in the face of the deficit that he's facing. He knows that it's just him and he could be murdered conceivably. They don't have a, a, an inherent fear of the FBI. They don't know what organized law enforcement is in, in this movie. They He could have easily died multiple times, right? Because he knows there's no competing force of organized law enforcement that can match the newly burgeoning organized crime in this movie. A really good performance, maybe a typical FBI kind of holding it close to the vest performance, but before the FBI really had the resources to be to command such a respect. Okay, we're going to wrap this up with two bits. There were three scenes in Killers of the Flower Moon that were reminiscent of scenes in Titanic. Uh, was it the naked drawing scene? <laughs> The makeout in the carriage. Okay, the, got it. The car race, which is the, which was the substitute for the for watching the dolphins at the prow, and then the scene that we have not yet discussed, where he plays poker. Oh yeah, and wins his passage. I like that money. I like that money, boys. Okay, and now your responses to the headlines for IMDb reviews. The first being nine stars for touches upon an often overlooked piece of American history. Touches upon is apropos. It doesn't really go too much beyond that. As much as Martin Scorsese has affection for this story and for the Osage people and their plight at this time, he makes it a Martin Scorsese movie for sure. Seven stars for Will Someone Tell Marty He Needs to Edit His Movies Down. It's true. And that applies to Thelma Schoomaker, too, who's been around since the 60s and a multiple Academy Award winner. A great editor because of her stylistic flair and because her command. I think that they've both gotten complacent and just luxur luxuriate in all the footage that they've shot. They're a little bit too precious and they need to get hardcore. I would have aggressively cut an hour out of this movie. And lastly, for nine stars, Coyote Want Money. <laughs> is that the synopsis for the movie? <laughs> yeah, it, it basically is, right? From basically. From, a, from, a, from an Osage perspective. Coyote Want Money, Coyote Want Give Money to Cowboy. I mean, look, this is a, a movie that I was hugely anticipating. This was so long in coming. And this weird emergence of Jesse Plemons as a movie star... 
I was waiting and it took like two hours for him to show up. Uh, when Brendan Fraser was coming back around, I was like, he still got killers of the flower moon. He lost Batgirl or whatever, but we're going to see him. And this is going to be the culmination of his comeback. And three hours in, I was like, where is Brendan Fraser? <laughs> and then he popped up and let me explain to you the duality of man, the evil that lurks in the hearts of all men, mankind, and that includes women and anybody else. Are you ready? Go. Brendan Fraser, we love that dude. Sure. I thought he was great the in The Whale. So really good. want him, just like Kihi Kwan, you really want him to come back, right? And to be in a Martin Scorsese movie, which is arguably the most serious movie that you can be in for in terms of credibility. The internet is supposedly divided on Brendan Fraser's performance, where he doesn't show up for a long time, and then he has that outburst in the courtroom. One of one, somebody likened his role to the Kool Aid Man, <laughs> where he, he just appears, and, and, and when he does, bursts. he bursts through the wall. <laughs> and the fact that you're laughing at that, which is sizest and horrible shows just how evil we all are in we can have the best intentions but when something is funny it's funny and when well when you know you know when you see the blue-eyed devil that it's a bad character in this movie you're like oh brendan fraser's that bad and we can be evil and, and we and we show our true oh. selves. We show oh. our Pazuzu and Lamashtu when things are funny. And the white man, the white devil, Hale and Ernest, they show their devil when something is money. And it's all money in this movie. And that leads to all sorts of justifications for truly horrible things. It's an amalgamation of of so many Scorsese movies, when Hale starts eliminating people left and right to distance himself from evidence of his his uh, involvement in the murders, that's pure Goodfellas, so many different things. What we're saying is that maybe it's worth three hours to wait to see John Lithgow and Brendan Fraser duke it out. <laughs> Both of whom have less than 10 minutes of screen time. And to further sum it up, your final rating for Killers of the Flower Moon is... Look, I I know that it was long, but I'm a cinephile, or at least I consider myself so. Um, I I did drift here and there, but by and large, it held my attention way more than The Irishman. They had this curious score, this sort of pulsing, twangy guitar heartbeat kind of thing that I found really engaging. It's like an undercurrent of menace. There will be Bloodstyle, with whom this movie also shared a number of similarities, most notably the oil and the wealth that comes with it, and put in the hands of people who have no clue what to do with it or how to act responsibly. I've, I liked Killers of the Flower Moon. It is going to have a presence at the Academy Awards no matter what. A well-made movie, but to what end? Like, what is the purpose of this movie? Is it to be entertaining in its horribleness? Is it to see Martin Scorsese's conscience played out on film or his or the things that he loves? Or what? I'm not sure. I enjoyed watching it because he is one of our, our truly skilled filmmakers and one of our more, most enduring auteurs. But who's giving Killers of the Flower Moon uh, on 4K Blu-ray as a, as a Christmas present, you know? Strange, dark people who say that The Exorcist is their favorite movie. <laughs> oh, man. 
that's an official all right rating. I can't, there's nothing bad about this movie if, if, except the subject matter. And I've never been one to steer away from that or to declare a movie bad because its subject matter is difficult. I'll give the non-existing two-hour version of Killers of the Flower Moon a good. <laughs> and that's our discussion on Killers of the Flower Moon from 2023 shot in 2020. Available in theaters and coming soon to Apple TV+. Plus. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out nearly 300 others at orwhatevermovies.com and become a patron on Patreon. Follow us on social media at or whatever movies. And as always, we love them five-star reviews. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Happy Thanksgiving. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 years of music with 50-year-old white guys. Electric acid. Are you a fan of classic cinema or a young person who wants to discover the best films of all time? Do these legendary movies still hold up? On the Generation Film Podcast, two guys who grew up when movies dominated the culture share a great film with a panel of young movie lovers and see how it plays for today's generation. We discuss changes in storytelling styles, representation, and the making of each film, its initial reception, and how its meaning has changed over the years. Join us as we explore cinema classics across generations on Generation Film. Electric acid. Electric acid.